I'm Jessica Doerr, and you're listening to The Offering for September 12th, 2022. Intolerance of uncertainty is something I think a lot about. It's defined by Michelle Degas and colleagues as, quote, the tendency to react negatively on an emotional, cognitive, and behavioral level to uncertain situations and events. Psychologists Joan Davidson and Rochelle Frank write that intolerance of uncertainty overlaps in certain ways with intolerance of ambiguity, though they are not the same. Intolerance of ambiguity involves experiencing current situations as threatening due to their ambiguous features, while intolerance of uncertainty involves a sense of threat related to the unpredictability of future events. There's perspective anxiety, which is anticipation of uncertainty, and then there's inhibitory anxiety, which is unwillingness or inability to act in the presence of uncertainty. Both have been linked with DSM disorders, including generalized anxiety, depression, obsessive-compulsive, panic, and social phobia. Intolerance of uncertainty and intolerance of ambiguity both seem to be super common, and I find them super interesting. Both speak to the need to have true, complete things to rest in. This can be problematic, for sure. As mentioned above, it can limit flexibility, drive obsession and compulsion, and make life tight where it wants to be spacious. As someone who has fit that description many times in my life, I want to say, though, that my challenging relationship with uncertainty and ambiguity is also in large part to thank for my deep love of stories. Because I love stories so much, and I'm getting ready to start doing clinical work again, I've been studying narrative therapy, which is a style of work that feels a bit like the talk therapy version of old initiation rituals, where a person leaves home to the forest, gets rearranged, and comes back changed. Which is to say that if you are certain about your story, through the narrative process, you will work at being less sure through a series of deconstructive and space-opening questions. Then you will ask whether the story could go differently, and if yes, spend time gathering proof to support the tales you prefer. One of the things that feels good about stories for me is that they have a beginning, middle, and end. So when you're telling or being told a story, it's reasonable to expect you'll walk away feeling more certain about the meaning of something and not less. Regardless of the scale and seriousness of the uncertain or ambiguous material that we're performing meaning on when we make stories, it feels safe to say that we make them to cope with what we're seeing and we do it because it does something for us psychologically. Narrative work is about summoning the unconsidered or surprising details that would blow apart the sure things. Sure things can be generative and they can also be stifling, as we know. So I've been reading and thinking a lot about what it looks like to open up what's been presented to you as closed, like a story about yourself or others or the world, and making new worlds with what you find in the shadows of the main lines. I love this way of thinking about stories because it stands for a way of relating with uncertainty that makes room for some agency. I get to invite the wild thing by asking questions and seeking what I couldn't have planned to find. Me personally, I'm never going to stop needing to make stories about my situations, and we can call it needing to be in control or intolerance of uncertainty or obsession or worry or any other symptom in the DSM. Agency takes the edge off. Nothing wrong about it. If you read enough writing on myths and old stories, and even on tarot, you will encounter some variation of language that says things to the effect that myths confirm ambiguity rather than settle it. 
Psychologist James Hillman famously, in my mind, wrote that myths do not tell us how, and that the specific act of mythologizing, or connecting the symbols in our own lives with mythic ones, is only doing its job if it's yielding more uncertainty and not less. As someone who probably scores high on the intolerance of uncertainty scale, yes, that's a real thing, I feel like this helps me understand why I'm so attracted to tarot and myths and other old tales. I have an intuitive sense that with enough exposure to strange visuals, I will learn to lean into both uncertainty and ambiguity. So far, I think this has been true, at least in terms of my meaning-making work. I need less for the stories to mean things right away, and that's given way to a lot of nourishment. Hillman went as far as to say that revelation of truth was both the prerequisite and the result of mystery. This feels like a poetic way of saying that if we could somehow learn to tolerate what we don't know or can't paste a label on yet, we'd be on track to be wise. Looking back, I've rarely known what fruits were ripening in me until one day I just had them. Knowledge often feels either imminent as a juice stain on lips or non-existent. And if you pluck a secret too soon from the vine, it won't feed you for long or be sturdy enough to withstand the trenches. As much as we love to make tales, truth tells its own story in its own time, not ours. Reading people like Hillman has made me want to do much more than tolerate uncertainty. I want to love mystery in a way that I'm simply not convinced is possible. What would one do who wants to blush and sigh softly while watching a fruit do a slow-motion explosion, knowing all she can do is to water it and wait? Ironically, I guess, when it comes to the question of how to love mystery, I need answers. The stories we tell are a starting point. Well-told tales are like shields or fortresses against the unexpected, and good questions asked at opportune times can put dents in the walls or chinks in that armor. Questions can deform what was once seen as natural or normal. In his book, The Other Within, disabled storyteller Daniel Deerdorf noted the genius of deformity and quoted Gaston Bachelard, who describes imagination as the faculty of deforming the images offered by perception. To perform meaning on an existing story means to use the imagination to take what we've been given and deform it. To deconstruct a narrative and put it back together is to go out to the forest and then return again changed. Questions are the compass and the knife, the talismans, Used well, they can get us out and back in one piece. Deformity is, by definition, an exception to something that's considered dominant or normal. In narrative therapy, the deformity might be called the sparkling moment, which is when we're telling our stories and a detail pops out that doesn't conform to the main narrative. It's also arguing about something and your partner points out what you're not seeing and you're like, well, shit. The deformity or sparkling moment is an anomaly with new worlds inside, experiences that refuse the script. And because we're always matching patterns and seeking coherence, these are details that can be easy to miss. We often have to go out of our way to seek them. It's inconvenient. When I think about intolerance of uncertainty, I do think about being unable to withstand not knowing the meaning of something or what the present will bring to bear on the future but I also think about being unable to see what I don't already believe. I think about new gods showing up at the door with the promise of new realms and being so fixated on the old ones that I turn them away and miss out. 
Questions are like carriers, mythic Caspians that take us into the underworld or from the center of the sure thing to the stuff at the edges that we don't have names for yet. And when we find the sparkling moments, they are openings. Sometimes openings appear to us in Deerdorf's words as glory in the cloak of shame. And this idea is represented by fool characters like Percival in the Grail legend, who is described like this by a knight who encounters him in the forest. His wits are distinctly scattered. Whatever I ask him, point blank, he answers sideways and off the mark, asking the names of things and how they're used. Shame-laden as they may be, fools are also widely understood to be unexpected medicine bringers, jokers with secret passcodes who spill them in riddles, dispossessed people that no one trusts whose accidents are miracles. Call it whatever you like. It isn't nice, it doesn't fit, it shouldn't be allowed, and it doesn't belong, writes Deerdorf, who was disabled by polio as a child and used a wheelchair for most of his life. Both questions and fools have to do with openings to the unknown, hence the shape of the zero on the fool card in tarot. But because they so often appear in the cloak of shame, to access them we have to imagine or to deform what we think of as divine. And I think this includes our most compelling stories and what we take as omniscient truth. The subversive act of probing and seeking and asking for more texture than what was given is just one of many possible ways to dance with uncertainty or ambiguity when you might rather stay plastered to the wall. Because new truths arrive in unexpected clothing, dressed as outlandish or unbelonging or outcast, we fashion questions as offerings to uncertainty, invitations to the unruly and uncouth, and doorways for new gods to walk through. I want to argue that storytelling itself is a sacrificial practice, and I'll say more about that next week, but for now, an invitation. The next time you tell a story, or listen to one, pay attention to what's being omitted, which is to say, sacrificed. Wonder about which gods are benefiting from that, and what whoever's telling the story hopes to be blessed with in return. You're listening to The Offering for September 12th, 2022. These weekly offerings are generally for paid subscribers only, but I've made this one public for private reasons. If you'd like to receive them weekly from now on or simply to support this work, you can sign up to be a paying subscriber for $5 a month, $50 a year or more at the subscribe button in the text of this post. Paying subscribers receive weekly offerings in both text and audio format, plus access to the archives beginning in July 2021, and the audio versions began in October 2021. So there's a whole um, set of those as well. This recording was engineered by Lee Clark, and the music is by Lee Clark. The intro is called Evaporate, featuring Kingsley Ibaniche, and the outro is an early cut from Ibaniche's new album, Udo, which is out this Friday. Please go have a listen to that project wherever you stream music. I'm including some links in the post. 
Um, and you can also go listen to more of Lee's music at the links in the post as well. Um, also, side note, Lee produced um, Kingsley's album Udo, so it's kind of all Lee's music. <laughs> um, but anyway, go support my friends. They're amazing. Um, and thank you so much for being here. We will see you next time. Need some peace 